Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. This is the Misty Winston Show on today's news talk radio, TNT. Well, hey there, and welcome to the Misty Winston Show right here on today's News Talk. Thanks, as always, for tuning in to hang out with me. Uh, we have a great show lined up. I'm super pumped about this one. Uh, Stavrula Pops is going to be here. She's an incredible freelance journalist. Um, she's done some work for Unlimited Hangout, and I think she's got some stuff in Sheer Post and the Gray Zone. Uh, but she has a fantastic new piece out regarding crypto and CBDCs. And this is an issue that, frankly, I don't cover enough. Um, uh, it's uh, kind of outside of my um, comfort zone, I guess you would say. I generally focus more on foreign policy stuff, free speech issues, um, but CBDCs are incredibly troubling. So I'm very excited to have her here. We're going to dig into some of the shenanigans that they have going on there. A couple quick things before we jump into the show. Um, first of all, I'm super annoyed with myself. Yesterday, our guest was Nick Cruz from Revolutionary Blackout Network. Today is his birthday, and I didn't know. He's my friend, and I didn't know that today was his birthday. So if I would have known, I would have embarrassed him yesterday on the show. So everybody head over to um, uh, at Socialist MMA over on the tweeters and wish him a happy birthday. Uh, I love Nick, so I'm super bummed that I did not get a chance to um, embarrass him slightly yesterday for his birthday. Um, also, uh, so <laughs> the Democratic Party's voter outreach program is going great, y'all. So apparently on, and this is from a uh, a Twitter account called Nevadans for Palestinian Liberation. Um, you can follow them if you would like or go check this out. It's at NPL underscore Palestine. Um, this is so ridiculous. So it says on Saturday, January 27th at the Kamala Harris Get the Vote Out event in Las Vegas, two visible members of the Muslim community wearing hijabs were not let in by campaign officials. The Biden-Harris campaign is clearly fanning the flames of Islamophobia. This is an interesting voter outreach strategy, let me tell you, especially given the fact that we know that uh, the Muslim community has been uh, really rather unhappy with the Biden administration for obvious reasons. In fact, they were attempting to uh, schedule a meeting with uh, the Muslim community in Michigan. Obviously, there's a, a large Muslim community in Michigan, um, and they were attempting to make some, uh, some outreach efforts there. They were going to hold meetings and everything. I think that most of those have had to be canceled uh, due to outrage um, from the community. Um, I could be wrong. I don't think that, that any of those have happened as of yet. Um, but this thread continues. It says, both of these Muslim constituents had RSVP'd for the event, were given wristbands upon checking in, and were standing in line when the Harris campaign officials denied them entry. And there is a video of this, by the way, on this thread, if you want to go check it out. It's so awkward. It's this um, random white guy uh, with sunglasses on and they're they're telling him dude uh, hello could you be more obviously racist and he literally just says i'm sorry <laughs> okay that's a interesting response the thread continues as you can clearly see in the video, these women were, quote unquote, disinvited while others were being let in who were in line behind them. When pressed about why they were not allowed in, the Harris officials could not give a legitimate reason. Uh, for all those voters who were not sure about who to vote for in the upcoming election, please ask yourselves if you are okay with the openly blatant openly blatant racism we are seeing here by the Biden-Harris ticket. Not only are they funding and giving political cover to Israel to commit a genocide against the Palestinian people, but they are also discriminating against Mer Americans for their religious beliefs. Shame on our Democratic quote-unquote leaders. Uh, Nevada Dem staffers Sean Huey and Demi Falcon uh, at Clark Dems Chair Shelby Wiltz and every supporter partaking in Islamophobia. So, 
I mean, that is something. That's, I mean, honestly, I uh, I don't expect much from the Biden-Harris administration or their campaign. Uh, they're pretty awful, right? Uh, I think we all know that by now. But um, this is, again, just a really interesting voter outreach uh, uh, given the situation now. I, I'm sure that they were concerned that these people may have been in let's be fair, we're likely protesters who were going to attempt to disrupt the event. But I mean, we do have First Amendment rights. They are um, free to do that. They're free to attend these events and uh, confront politicians and their elected officials. That's um, part of the greatness of this country. At least that's what they tell us. So um, I just think that this is this is a very bad look. And obviously, this has gone a little bit viral. Um, it has over 483,000 views. That's going to continue to go up. It was just posted um, just a few hours hours ago. So uh, that's obviously going to continue to go up. Um, the Biden and Harris administration is in a lot of trouble with this whole situation. Now they're trying to start a uh, war with Iran <laughs> over uh, uh, under dubious circumstances with very little evidence to support uh, what they're attempting to go to war for. So um, yeah, it's not it's not looking good for the Biden-Harris administration. Obviously, I don't think it's going to be the Biden-Harris ticket. I've been saying for a very long time, I don't think Joe Biden's going to be the Democratic Party nominee when it really comes down to it. I think they are going to attempt at some point, at when is really the question, uh, they're going to try to yank him off of the ticket for health reasons, um, and they're going to try to replace him with who knows, right? They don't have, they really don't have anybody. Uh, I mean, Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, Michelle Obama, maybe. I think Michelle Obama is really the only option that could potentially have some, um, you know, popularity, at least of some kind. I think Gavin Newsom is not very, even within his own parties. I, it, I, I just don't think Biden's going to be the nominee, but we'll see. I'm certainly open to being wrong on that. I just don't know how they're going to put Joe Biden on a debate stage. <laughs> That's going to be an unmitigated disaster. And frankly, I kind of hope that they do because that would be highly entertaining. So uh, go check out this thread if you would like, share it with your friends and family. Um, that's the Democratic Party voter outreach strategy, apparently. So there you have it. All right. Don't forget, you can follow me over on the tweeters at Sarcasm Stardust. Check out the Substack. It's mistywinston.substack.com. Write up for the guests of the day every day with links so you can find, follow, and support their work as well. And you can shoot me an email, mistywinston at tntradio.live, guest idea show idea, rant, question, whatever, hit me up. I will try to get back to you. And uh, if you have a suggestion for a possible guest just in general that you would like to hear on TNT, or perhaps you have a topic that you feel we should be discussing, uh, we certainly do want to hear from you. you can, there's a suggestion form over on the TNT website, uh, which is again, tntradio.live, and you can help us make a difference right here on today's News Talk. Delivering the facts. Source I can trust. Today's News Talk Radio. TNT. TNT. All right. Some Democratic lawmakers have accused President Joe Biden's administration of taking, quote unquote, highly unusual steps in order to continue sending weapons to Israel, Israel's military without running the arms transfers by Congress. He wouldn't do that. Here with the story joining me now is TNT News producer Adam Clark, a.k.a. Ruckus. So some actual Democrats are making some tepid criticisms of President Joe Biden. Is that what I'm gathering here? Yeah, I was I was like, what's going on here? What year is right? this? Did we travel back in time? <laughs> what is going on? Um, but yeah, it's it's actually some names that might actually make sense when you look into it. But um, yeah, this uh, the Arms Export Control Act, the AECA generally, <laughs> usually requires a presidential administration to notify Congress. How pesky. What a process. Oh, I can't be bothered with that. But yeah, you're supposed to notify Congress of foreign arms transfers in most cases and to allow Congress time to review the proposed arms 
arms transfers. The State Department has circumvented this congressional notification process to provide weapons to Israel in recent weeks, citing an exception in the AECA that allows the Secretary of State to skip the notification process if he or she deems there is an emergency requiring more immediate arms transfers. Well, apparently just before the weekend, I kind of missed this, but on Friday, January 26th, Senators Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Representative Jim McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts, sent a letter signed by 17 other Democratic senators and representatives, along with the independent from Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, he caucuses with the Democrats. They uh, basically demanded that the Biden administration explain its rationale for providing weapons to Israel without fully notifying Congress. Uh, the letter states, quote, it is highly unusual for the president to bypass congressional oversight through an emergency declaration. In fact, since the AECA was passed into law, an emergency declaration authority has only been used 18 times in nearly 50 years. Yet in a single month, this administration used the authority twice. First, to approve the sale of nearly 14,000 rounds of 120-millimeter tank ammunition worth more than $106 million, and then, again, to approve the sale of fuses, primers, and charges worth $147.5 million, which uh, that allow for the use of 155 millimeter shells and quote the january 26th letter raised added concern about the types of weapons that the biden administration had supplied to israel under these emergency authorities it noted a november letter that several civil society organizations sent to the u.s department of defense expressing concerns that 155 millimeter shells pose quote a grave risk to civilians, end quote, and are, quote unquote, inherently indiscriminate when used in de densely populated areas such as the Gaza Strip. The lawmakers further cited a report by Reuters that one of the publication's journalists was killed in Lebanon on October 13th by a 120 millimeter tank shell fired by an Israeli tank crew. The Israeli combat operations in the Gaza Strip came, of course, after the Hamas thing. We know that. I apologize. I meant to skip that. Uh, in the letter, though, the Democratic lawmakers expressed their dismay at the atrocities that were committed by Hamas, but raised concerns about the reported number of Palestinian civilians killed in the Gaza Strip in the ensuing conflict. They insisted that the notification processes in the AECA and provisions in other U.S. laws are meant to ensure that U.S. arms transfers to foreign nations, quote, are consistent with the foreign policy interests of the United States, end quote, and that such arms transfers will not further aggravate a conflict or raise the risk that a recipient country violates <clears throat> international humanitarian and human rights laws. The letter called on State Department and Secretary of State Antony Blinken to explain the Biden administration's reasoning for the emergency declaration they've used in order to permit this arms transfer to Israel without the full AE, 
see a notification process. And finally, Misty, the lawmakers also asked the Biden administration to explain how it determined that the arms transfers to Israel would not be likely to aggravate the conflict or lead to violations of international humanitarian laws. They have until February 9th to respond. What do you think? <laughs> oh, that last little part there makes me giggle a little bit because uh, how how to, how it determined that the arms transfers to Israel would not be likely to aggravate. Really? That's the whole point of sending the weapons is to aggravate the conflict. That is the entire, What? why else would you be sending weapons at him? What is the point of sending weapons unless the goal is to uh, continue or aggravate a conflict? That makes zero sense whatsoever. It is very clear what the intentions are by sending those weapons. Um, Listen, it, we've, we've sent dumb bombs. We've sent, uh, uh, what was it? The 150, what did it, uh, 155 millimeter, yeah, 155 millimeter shells. Um, We know that we've sent white phosphorus in the past, which uh, Israel has used in Lebanon recently. Um, this is this is insane. And the uh, listen, I'm glad that these uh, Democratic lawmakers. And let's just be real: Bernie Sanders also a Democrat. He pretends to be independent. Dude is a Democrat through and through. Um, but I'm glad that they're at least doing something. But this is once again, and there's we joke about this uh, very often on um, kind of the indie media space uh, on Twitter. It's another strongly worded letter, right? It's another nothing's going to come of this. There's going to be no accountability. They're going to continue to allow Joe Biden to do exactly what he's doing. Um, many in his own party support these efforts, um, and so it's um, absurd to me that this. It's absurd to me that this is. Even a question. We know that they are committing a genocide. We know that they are committing that genocide uh, very much through our uh, military aid. There's no doubt about it. We have been giving, and this is not just since October 7th, we have been providing financial and military aid to Israel for a very long time. Um, Israel could not function without the aid and assistance of the United States of America. And that just also lends to the idea that they could not be committing genocide without the aid and assistance of the United States. The United States could today, right now, Joe Biden could put an end to the genocide taking place in Gaza um, just simply by uh, refusing to fund and arm Israel, period. It would be over. It would be over. I mean, obviously, I think we talked about this. Maybe it would take a few days for them to run out, maybe a week to run out of the current uh, munitions that they have, the current weapons that they have. But it would very quickly be over at that point. And so, yeah, uh, it, it's um, it's interesting to me that this is the approach that the Biden administration is taking moving into an election year. Again, not a good look to be arming and funding a genocide in an election year. Not that Trump would be any better on this issue, don't get it twisted, also a massive Zionist. I don't think that he would be any better on this issue. But with Biden being the one um, at the uh, at the helm right now, it is certainly a bad look moving into uh, 2024. Um, and <laughs> I mean, I guess it's good that these uh, people are speaking out against it, but it seems like yet another very toothless um, uh, you know, attempt at um, really just saving face. Look, we wagged our finger at him. It's not our fault, right? I feel like that's kind of what this is doing here is that these senators, um, these these lawmakers just want to kind of save face and say that they attempted to do something to stop Joe Biden and Israel. So I don't know, though. What do you think, Adam? Bingo, that last that last point you just made. I think that's exactly it. I think they're starting to see the the forest for the trees, uh, yeah. the, how the history might look at this situation. And they're like, oh, gosh, we got to remember we're Democrats and people got to vote for us another time if we want to keep doing what we're doing here. 
Uh, God only knows what that is, Misty. Um, and, you, and you're right, uh, the toothless uh, concept, too. This doesn't mean anything. They're not asking them to stop. They're not saying, what can we do to make it stop? They're just saying, hey, can you explain yourself? What's your reasoning for doing this? <laughs> like, OK, what does that solve? Nothing, nothing, nothing. And there is no explanation. And they know that full well. They know that there is no justification for this. Anybody with two brain cells and an ounce of humanity knows that there is no justification for what we are doing in this situation. So um, explain yourself is so ridiculous to me. Um, uh, at least I guess it is um, bringing some more uh, another, another level of awareness. Um, but I think that, yeah, you're right. It's an election year. And I think that these Congress people see the writing on the wall. They recognize that their own base is in the streets against this uh, genocide. And I think that that's it's really just about self-preservation uh, more than anything, which is really disappointing and depressing. But that's the reality that we live in. So uh, thanks for bringing us the story, Adam. We will talk to you again tomorrow. As always, hang tight. We'll be back right here on today's News Talk. TNT's Steve Malzberg. If a president could be prosecuted for things he did, which he believed and was advised by his lawyers what, what was was the duty of the president to do. And then after the fact, after he's president, he could be prosecuted. The example has come up today many times. Well, when Joe Biden leaves office, he could be prosecuted for not securing the border. Barack Obama um, okayed drone strikes against American citizens overseas. He could be prosecuted for murder. I mean, this opens up a whole can of worms. Um, Pandora's box, I think, is the term that uh, that Trump used. Steve Malzberg on today's News Talk TNT. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community, and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who's supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. All right. Our guest tonight is Stavrula Paps, who is a writer, comedian, and media PhD student um, uh, in Athens, Greece. Her writing has appeared in publications including Unlimited Hangout, which you hear me talk about fairly frequently, uh, Reductress, Amaya Dean, and The Gray Zone, which we also talk about quite a bit here on the show. Uh, she has a fantastic new piece, as I mentioned at the top of today's show, uh, out at Unlimited hang Hangout on CBDCs and crypto. This is an issue that, um, admittedly, I do not cover nearly enough. I don't think it really gets near enough coverage in in general, um, but I myself uh, need to do a better job of talking about it more frequently. We're going to be diving into uh, that conversation today, hoping to get a better grasp of the uh, the plans and the shenanigans going on surrounding CBDC. So, Stavrila, thanks so much for being here. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm really excited that you're here because as I said, I do not talk about this nearly enough. I know it's an issue. I know it's something that is incredibly threatening to, um, you know, our civil liberties and privacy and all of that stuff. And I just don't talk, I need to do a better job of making the effort to uh, uh, really kind of uh, dig into these stories more frequently. So I'm glad that you're here. Um, and this article, let's just start with the very basics. And the TNT audience is very in the know. They're not dumb. But just in case, if anybody is not fully aware, what exactly are CBDCs. Sure. And, uh, and I agree, probably your audience is aware of this issue, but CBDCs, which are essentially central bank digital currencies, I think that this is one of the most important uh, political topics facing us today, to be quite honest, because this CBDCs are essentially digital versions of a country's fiat currency, but they are facilitated by central banks. In other words, it's government digital money. And I think the primary concerns here, you know, a lot of advocates regarding um, a lot of advocates, you know, wanting CBDCs will say things like this is about modernization of the financial system. This is about financial inclusion. Maybe they will say things like, oh, it fights um, corruption, these types of things. What they won't talk about is CBDC's extreme uh, potential for things like surveillance. And um, perhaps most dangerous is the prospects of programmability, which I can explain very briefly. We're in a situation, technologically speaking, where uh, it's probably quite easy for digital money to be programmed, where you can essentially say what functions you would be you would like to have carried out depending on what's going on. And what we've seen, I think I, I even have the quote with me in terms of how dangerous programmability is. We have a quote from a literally IMF managing director, Bo Lee, who says that uh, CBDCs can allow government agencies to program, to create smart contracts, to allow targeted policy functions. For example, welfare payment, consumption coupons, food stamps. By programming CBDCs, money can be precisely targeted for what people can do and what people can own. So that's, in short, the concern here. And unfortunately, we're in a state where they are being considered in mass. If you check out the Atlantic Council CBDC tracker, I think currently countries representing 98% of the world's GDP are either exploring, developing, or testing, like rolling out CBDCs at this time. That's terrifying. 98%, yeah. y'all. That is a terrifying prospect. And yeah, I think that, um, I mean, some of the the uh, justifications for this, as you mentioned, there's the equity and all that stuff. I've also heard a whole lot about convenience, which is, um, it's really like my kryptonite. I love convenience. I think most people do. I think convenience is great. But then it's, you really have to dig underneath of that word and recognize what you are giving away in order to uh, obtain that convenience. And it really is, I, I really just cannot explain express enough how, in my opinion, and, and as you said, it is one of the most, and that's why I'm, I'm a little annoyed with myself for not covering it more frequently, um, but it is one of the most important and dire situations that we're facing right now because this is a massive leap into legitimate fascism where, um, mm -hmm. you know, they already, in this country, at least in the West, um, uh, especially in the United States, I mean, first of all, we are kind of um, programmed to demand convenience, but also we already have been kind of set up 
for this to be something that's incredibly easy for them to walk us into because most who carries cash, right? Not yeah. most people do not carry cash. So we're, do you feel like they've already kind of um, uh, really kind of set the stage for this here in the United States and in the West more broadly? Sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm Greek American, so I, I've lived in both the United States and Greece. And I think it's a little bit of both. My opinion is, unfortunately, yeah, people are very used to digital. They are used to bank cards right now and even like the pay with your phone type thing. And I, I've seen every time I go back to the United States, I, I'm shocked because it's it's almost no one there uses cash from what I can see is what's going on. I think in Greece, it's a little bit more cash based. It's just how it is. But those things there are changing as well. And I, I think that this kind of normalizes it. People get used to the convenience. And I think that we're almost in a situation where you feel like sometimes you're inconveniencing people if you use cash when most people are using card, right? Um, I think at the same time, that's a critical um, observation. At the same time, uh, what I think is also important to say is that a lot of countries in the developing world have also been used for these pilots. And I think part of the reason of that is that uh, people testing these pilots, if they occur elsewhere, I think it gets less coverage. So then people become less concerned about perhaps whatever dangerous prospects they may hold for surveillance, maybe, or programmability, perhaps this will get less coverage. So in my opinion, it's actually a little bit of both. I think, unfortunately, us dealing with cashless in the United States uh, sets us up for that, sure. But I also think that these rollouts, as I said, they're nearly universal and countries, regardless of how much cash isn't or isn't being, is or isn't being used, are considering it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause it's not, uh, as a, a very Western centric question, I guess that I just asked, uh, that we've been kind of set up here in the West. And obviously I think we have, um, but there are mm -hmm. countries who, um, have more of a cash-based economy, um, uh, generally speaking, maybe, uh, not entirely, but certainly to some degree. And I think that, uh, that's almost, almost, uh, where it's more prevalent where we're seeing those kinds of things roll out. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think that, um, they're doing it in countries like that where, um, you know, smaller countries, there's not a lot of media. There's specifically not a lot of Western media covering what's going on in those countries. So it's much easier for them to test it there, see what kind of pushback they get, see what they, what, mm -hmm. you know, kind of buttons they can push um, and how far they can push it before they bring it to the United States. And we've seen them do that with a whole host of other things. This is not the first time that they've done uh, these, that they've used these tactics to do things in other countries uh, before they bring yeah. it to the United States. So we have to take a quick break and get headlines. Hang tight. We're going to be right back here on today's news talk. TNT Radio News. For TNT, this is James O'Neill. A New York Times report citing a classified Israeli government document has alleged the involvement of several United Nations Palestinian Refugee Agency, UNRWA, or UNRWA, employees in the kidnapping of Israelis and assistance to Hamas during the attack on October 7th. A Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court judge has ruled that former President Donald Trump will remain on the state's primary election ballot. Don't miss a thing. Be sure to download the TNT radio app from either the Apple App Store or Google Play so you can easily listen live to us anywhere, anytime. Available right now to download. Keeping you up to speed on TNT radio. 
All right. We are here with Stavrila Paps, and we're talking about her article on uh, CBDCs and crypto, uh, which I want to dive into a little bit of that um, uh, that kind of intersection there, because uh, as the CBDC race is kind of uh, gaining ground, b- building momentum, obviously there are a bunch of major players in the crypto world that are trying to get their hands into this. And I think that that's super interesting. When crypto was first introduced, um, it was kind of couched as this, uh, you know, freedom currency, right? Like you can, uh, this mm-hmm. is, it gets you outside of the system. System, very quickly, it feels as if that has been uh, co-opted. And now we're seeing that they are uh, uh, the, the crypto world is now very heavily involved in the CBDC situation. So tell us about that intersection. Yeah. And I think this is this is essentially the crux of the article that I've written for Unlimited Hangout is that if you look at CBDC pilots that are ongoing, and like I said, they are happening at a breathtaking pace, I would say there's a CBDC race and then there's a pilot race where a lot of the times if you look at uh, CBDC pilots, you'll see that a lot of the times cryptocurrency protocols, digital payment protocols have often been selected from the private sector to facilitate these pilots, right? And of course, it's a problem because we're kind of seeing a public-private merger right there where this is a central bank digital currency, but a private infrastructure is supposed to, to assist that. Again, I I think that that's a problem for reasons your audience probably understands. The government is doling out critical responsibilities to the unaccountable private sector. Um, But on top of that, what we're learning is that a lot of crypto players, I have to speak a little bit generally when I say this, but what you learn is that a lot of them are either competing to get these slots in CBDC pilots or perhaps the protocol, which isn't owned by anybody in the case of Ethereum, is being used in a lot of these pilots. So this forces us, the primary point of this is that we need to start asking, okay, uh, are a lot of people in the crypto space actually interested in it? And I mean like the higher ups. Are these people interested in decentralized finance or financial freedom as many people would understand it? Or are they actually interested in building these infrastructures that will become part of uh, the money in tomorrow, the money of tomorrow, I should say. And that essentially to me signifies many of them want influence or control over the financial systems of tomorrow. This, in my opinion, gives them uh, power that maybe makes them more powerful than nation states. And I think that that's kind of critical to talk about within the context of a lot of larger unilateral policy initiatives going on worldwide that are undermining uh, state sovereignty in favor of uh, you know, global initiatives that seem to go down unilaterally. CBDCs is one of them, obviously. Yeah, for sure. And I'm glad that you just mentioned the uh, the kind of public-private partnership. I know Ian Davis speaks about that a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, uh, uh, again, this is not the only area where this is taking place, but I think that this is probably the most significant aspect um, because this is, it really is <laughs> just terrifying, the idea that our financial systems would be completely centralized. And I don't know that if people, I mean, obviously I think the TNT audience, incredibly intelligent, very dialed in, I think that they probably get it. But I think that the average American or, you know, the average global citizen, I don't know if they really recognize. I think a lot of people see it as, as we talked about, it's convenient. It helps, you know, get the money where it needs to go quickly, quickly or uh, quicker and easier, uh, all of that stuff. Um, but I don't think that they're recognizing 
recognizing the threats that that imposes on uh, things like our privacy and things like our um, uh, civil liberties. I mean, they can, and listen, they can already track us now. We carry around a, a little device yeah. in our hand and they can, anywhere we go, they know where we are, they know what we're doing. Uh, but this is just like the next step of that. And I think that once it is then tied to, um, you know, our finances, then if you do something that the state doesn't like, suddenly you no longer have access to your bank account. Suddenly you no longer have access to your finances. And that's really um, the the most troubling aspect of this is the uh, insane power grab that this really does appear to be. Um, and that's what I'm, that's what I mean about the crypto situation. You, I mean, you mentioned that, um, you know, it, it, we thought at least it was, it was presented to us that crypto was going to be this kind of freedom uh, uh, making currency that was going to get us outside of the system. And now we have all of these major players inside the crypto world. It was almost like a bait and switch, right? Like they presented it to us in a certain way. And now they're like kind of backdooring uh, this whole other aspect of it. And that's just really troubling. And obviously, as I'm reading through your article, <laughs> all of the pe all of the people that you like red flags will go up the World Economic Forum, Bill and Melinda Gates, I mean, uh, uh, Peter Thiel, all of the people who uh, if at any time they are associated with anything, uh, red flag should be going up all over the place. Sirens should be going off, all of that stuff. They're involved, right? They're involved in all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that what this is, of course, a complicated topic. And of course, we would have to just there's too many cryptocurrencies. So I don't want yes. to speak too generally about this. But that makes it very difficult. But, you know, I picked a few for a reason that we could zoom in on them and say, Ah, okay. Even if this organization claims to be about, you know, financial inclusion, financial freedom, what does that really mean? And then when you take a deeper look, it often sounds like this language is being forwarded to us. So the public thinks this sounds good. Maybe people do agree with a lot of uh, of the theoretical principles behind crypto as well. So and, and it's complicated for that reason. I do think that, you know, certain crypto pol uh, protocols like Bitcoin, I'm not sure I would call Bitcoin exactly crypto, but anyways, you know, there are reasons to for people to go to things like Bitcoin, right? At the same time, we see that a lot of uh, competing, let's say, bodies in the crypto space, they're essentially saying, yeah, this is totally about financial inclusion. But if you're look, taking a deeper look, um, you know, like, let's talk about Stellar, for example, one of the crypto players that I covered in the piece, they center themselves, they cut their, they, they're labeled as a nonprofit, they cover themselves as altruistic. Uh, they did a recent campaign, and I think it was like, uh, Stellar in the real world, you know, trying to make the case that Stellar can help people in dire situations escape them because they'll have borderless financial opportunities. The problem with that is that if you look deeper into what Stellar has been in the past, um, you know, I don't trust most of the people who have been in charge of it. And they use a lot of language that that tells you they aspire to become literally a global payment standard. To me, the language of global payment standard, when uh, spoken about in tandem with CBDC pilots, suggests to me that they actually want a lot of leverage over the financial infrastructures of tomorrow. Uh, Jed McCaleb, the founder of Stellar, even compared Stellar's uh, prospects or what Stellar could become as like important to society as the internet. So this is what they're gunning for in terms of the influence they would like.
Yeah. Yes. And you're right. They use a lot of these um, really troubling buzzwords. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like, for example, they strive towards global financial inclusion. I mean, it sounds yeah. good, right? And especially with Stellar, they're already presenting themselves as this um, do-gooder, altruistic type of a uh, company. And so they already have this kind of veil of, um, uh, uh, you know, just being kind of... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just uh, safe, uh, secure. Mm -hmm. And they do use a lot of those really st stability, security, resilience. I mean, they every time we see them using uh, these kinds of buzzwords, I always, you know, that kind of uh, whistle goes off in my head. Like, here we go. We're being sold a bill of goods. Um, and <clears throat> Stellar is just one of the companies that you took a look at. You also took, uh, took a look at Ripple and Ethereum. So I want to dive into those, but we do have to take another quick break. So hang tight. We'll be right back here on today's News Talk. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Without even realizing it, we learned a lot from Saturday morning cartoons. From Johnny Quest, we learned to trust your friends and always remain courageous in the face of danger. From Scooby-Doo, we learned to always pull the mask off the bad guy. You might just be surprised who he or she really is. And the Roadrunner cartoons? Well, the Roadrunner cartoons told us everything we need to know about the current Republican primary. Donald Trump is clearly the roadrunner, beep-beeping his way into the lead, off into the distance. But who is Wiley E. Coyote? I submit that it's Tricky Nicky. And the question that arose in my whippersnapper mind was always, who's buying all this stuff from Acme for the Coyote? He doesn't have any money. Likewise, who's paying for Nicky's campaign? We know Reed Hoffman is spreading around his LinkedIn monopoly money, but who else might be funding this quixotic campaign to destroy Donald Trump? The answer to that question will tell us everything we need to know, not just about Tricky Nicky, but about GOPE itself. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT. Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. <laughs> do you get it? Yes, good job. So, what should I do with all these coals? Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire. I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. See, Smokey thinks I'm funny. Misty Winston on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're here talking about CBDCs and crypto with several of Um, Okay, so we talked a little bit about Stellar. Uh, another one of these uh, companies that you took a look at is called Ripple. Um, I had not heard of this one. So you, you say in your article that it was really originally founded in 2012 as OpenCoin. And this one really got my ears perked, or I guess my eyes perked up because I'm reading it, not listening to it. But uh, it says it here that Ripple's mission is to, quote, build breakthrough crypto solutions for a world without economic borders, end quote. I mean, that sounds interesting. Uh, so talk a little bit about what is Ripple? Who is Ripple? What do they what, what do? they do? Yeah. So I, I, I guess I could have thought to say this when I talked about Stellar, but what's important to say here is that Ripple and Stellar kind of uh, rivals, let's say. In fact, uh, Jed McCaleb, who founded Stellar, had actually co-founded Ripple first. Um, with Chris Larson is what I remember to be the case. Um, and to be honest, they are quite similar in terms of what the actual uh, protocol is. Ripple's protocol, uh, if 
in, oh my goodness, what is the word? It facilitates XRP, which is one of today's largest cryptocurrencies. I wouldn't consider it to be especially uh, centralized, a decentralized, like many other cryptocurrencies kind of tend to uh, promote themselves as. But in terms of like what it's doing all the time in regards to the CBDC race, I believe it is co completely on the ball with that. It has it's in talks right now with about at least a dozen CBDC pilots, according to a literal quote from it. Um, to me, this one is probably I, I don't really trust it. I, I think that. You know, considering it was a project founded by Jed McCaleb, who then went off to found Stellar. Uh, this is an organization founded by somebody who seems to be quite the megalomaniac. As I had discussed earlier, he had described Stellar as establishing something comparable to the Internet in terms of building digital uh, financial payment structures. So um, I'd have to say the very least about it is I'm skeptical of it because of who I who has founded it. And um, that's more or less what I'd like to say about it. I should probably also describe Ethereum because it's a little bit more complicated. I would say that Stellar and uh, Ripple are more like the standard cryptocurrencies that are actively going after CBDC pilots. They're definitely very much actively in this competition. Whereas like Ethereum is a little bit different because Ethereum is, um, oh my goodness, I, my brain is not working right now. Ethereum is a little bit different. <laughs> I have that problem it, all the time. <laughs> it, it's also just like, there's so many cryptocurrencies. So my brain is like, oh my goodness, what do I need to say about this one? But with Ethereum, it's a little bit different because it, no one owns the Ethereum protocol and it's not like solely for cryptocurrencies either. It's a protocol, it's a coordination protocol that operates off smart contracts, which essentially if a function is uh, completed, the result will occur. So it's like a vending machine. You put the money in, you get the pop, okay? Um, so Ethereum is a little bit different because it's, on a decentralized, I don't know if I would call it decentralized anymore, but it's, no one owns it. It cannot advocate for itself to be part of these CBDC pilots in ways that Stellar or Ethereum, or sorry, Stellar or Ripple would do so, okay? But we see that Ethereum is being used in a large number of pilots for CBDCs anyways. And the protocol is something that anyone can use. It is not owned by anybody, so anybody could take it and use it for something like this. Um, I think that a lot of people pushing Ethereum for the start, um, I, you know, I think that they were trying to create something that was theoretically decentralized, that was a way for people to escape the traditional um, restraints of the current financial system. But I think, unfortunately, in recent years, um, it's become more uh, compromised, let's say, by the power elite. Very briefly, I would say that it's merge that took place in late 2022, and I described this in my article, uh, to validate transactions to go through the Ethereum network, it used to be through proof of work, which requires just a lot of energy to be able to do. So Ethereum says, okay, we're going to switch to proof of stake, which requires stakeholders in Ethereum to do the same. Unfortunately, this merge then gives a lot of the stakeholders of Ethereum 
more power. That's unfortunately the problem. And the discussion with that is that if somebody just owns a lot of stake in Ethereum, they can then have political influencers sway over the protocol. And a lot of people are buying up large percentages of Ethereum, like Binance, for example. Uh, if you look at like co-founder of Ethereum, Joe Lubin, for example, I think he might have five to 10% of the total stake. He is actively advocating for Ethereum to be a major uh, CBDC infrastructure, right? So in all of these cases, what we're seeing is maybe some level of whatever I may think about what happened when they were founded, what we're seeing is maybe I have problems with the leadership of the organization or whatever it is. We're seeing crypto players be either corrupted from the start or other things that are happening that compromise them. So you're seeing a situation then where these crypto player, sorry, these crypto protocols, maybe they are using the language of decentralized finance. They are talking about financial inclusion, but what we're seeing is in real time, these protocols are being used for CBDC pilots, which tells us that maybe this isn't really about financial inclusion. It's not really about financial freedom. Um, and I, like I had said earlier, I think that a deeper dive about uh, who the people are behind these things, like Joe Lubin, for example, Jed McCaleb, tell us there's a lot of power hungry people that are in this industry that are not just looking to be like influential in crypto. They seem to want larger uh, influence over the financial system, a.k.a. they want political power. Yeah, for sure. There's no question about it. I think that that's, um, I think that you don't have to look uh, very hard to see that. I, I think you just need to listen to any one of them speak for, you know, five, 10 minutes and you'll, uh, I think that comes across pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Um, and I think that that's what I do think is interesting is that, um, and you mentioned this in your article, uh, the Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing mm -hmm. that correctly, um, but he, he, he himself has even voiced concerns about CBDCs. Uh, this is from a September 2023 interview with CNBC. Uh, and he said, quote, they end up being even less private and basically break down all of the existing barriers against both corporations and the government at the same time. Crypto itself has a lot of dystopian potential if implemented wrong. And I'm sorry, that last part there was from a, another uh, another uh, interview he did with Time Magazine in 2022. Uh, mm -hmm. So that, that part, I think, was the most significant to me. The uh, crypto itself has a lot of dystopian potential if implemented wrong. And listen, that's generally the case with a lot of things, right? There's a lot of things that um, uh, could be good, that have the potential to be good. I think that, um, you know, uh, AI potentially could be great, um, but in the wrong hands, it very quickly becomes incredibly dangerous. And I think that uh, crypto and its uh, affiliation with CBDCs, CBDCs certainly points to that as well, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and again, it's it's complicated because I can't speak for every cryptocurrency. Right. It's not like I'm necessarily saying like, oh, all of them are bad now. The point is that the, the piece I wrote reflects on major trends I saw after looking at CBDC pilots for a very long time. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of these dots are not necessarily getting connected. Um, and I, the point of me covering these topics is that I think a lot of people in the geopolitical space stay in geopolitics. A lot of people in the crypto space stay there. But really, it's time for us, if we're trying to understand the future of finance, it's really critical that we 
look into what's going on because I do think the future of finance is about the future of geopolitics. And sure. um, these technologies are groundbreaking. It's difficult to predict how they could affect us. Obviously, as we said earlier, CBDCs have significant uh, propensities for significant societal harms that are not really being discussed like they should. And um, regardless of whether a societal discussion is taking place right now, we're seeing that they're being rolled out. And we're seeing a lot of these crypto players that, again, often talk about their technologies as being freedom-centered or about decentralized finance, they are either quietly doing this or they are loudly competing for slots in this. And I, I think that's because they would like the advantages that come with being able to have their protocols facilitate CBDCs in the future because I, we don't know what CBDCs will look like for sure. Obviously, there's a lot of speculation. There are a lot of policy papers. We can talk about it. But I think they know that if they have this, these types of rules and they can secure them right now, this means relevance for them in the years to come. But this also means um, they will get to have a large say in what the future of the financial infrastructure looks like, um, which is very dangerous it's kind of scary because it's a little bit difficult to say exactly how that will pan out, but these are technologies. I think it's, it's hard to believe to me that if a CBDC is rolled out, I think it would be hard if people hated it. I think it would be very difficult for people to be able to say, actually government, you're going to take this back somehow. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> definitely not going to happen. Once it's here, I think that that's it. And that's, that's why um, uh, I do think that it's unbelievably important that we're having these conversations. And again, I'm a bit frustrated with myself. I have not talked about this nearly enough. And I think that you're right. The people who I myself uh, am generally in a more geopolitical space. Um, and so I, this is not really my realm of, uh, of conversations, but it should be because the two things are directly intertwined. There is really just no de debating that they are. Uh, there's no doubt about it, that these things are interlinked and really uh, all things are. I think that um, that you can mm. connect the dots between any uh, any two issues, and that you'll be able to find the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you will, uh, in between any two issues. And I think that uh, certainly here, there's no question about it. And I think that um, you know what you're talking about is uh, it, it's important to point out, yes, that we're not um, uh, we're not broad brush painting all crypto here. Um, uh, I'm sure that there are some good ones who are well intentioned and are doing good things. I think that really the general issue is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that these technologies in general, regardless of the independent individual, um, you know, uh, companies that are doing it, the technology itself, the, uh, uh, the the setup, the software, all of that, that is what we need to be concerned about the way that it is being co-opted and will uh, undoubtedly be, be used for an unbelievable level of corruption. And again, the the biggest thing for me, I think, is um, the way that this marches us into, I mean, you, if we think that you live in a surveillance state now, once we have CBDCs, and again, there's no going back. You, there, I don't think there's an opt-out option here. Once they are implemented, I think they are here to stay. And if you think that we live in a surveillance state now, you really have no idea. And I think another part that I love about your article is the connections that it makes um, with all of the various nefarious players 
Um, again, as I mentioned, World Economic Forum, the Bill and Melinda uh, Gates Foundation, um, Peter Thiel, there are others that are mentioned in this article. And I think that that's really important to pay attention to and have conversations about making sure that you're watching who is involved with which companies. And it's it's just such a difficult and, um, as you said, it's very complicated trying to parse this out um, and kind of get a grasp of the whole, uh, the broader picture while also dialing into these specifics. Um, uh, but it it really just needs to, uh, the conversations need to be had on a much broader scale. And um, it's just, I think also several, I think a lot of people are um, intimidated. I think that crypto um, in general, I think it, it was for me for a very long time. I still, I'm still not entirely sure I understand it. You know what I mean? So I think there are a lot of people who just do not get it. And it's, um, it's an overwhelming topic for them to even dive into. And then you add to that the CBDCs and all of that stuff. And I think it becomes a bit overwhelming for people to approach, but, uh, certainly conversations that we need to be having. Um, is there anything else that we're missing from this article that you want to make sure that we dial in on? Um, are there any other points that you, uh, would really like to make sure that we we drive home because again, I don't cover this enough to make sure that I'm uh, uh, really sticking home the point that you would like to get across here. So, is there anything else that we're missing from this article that we should be uh, discussing? Sure, and I mean it's a it's a very difficult topic. I feel like I've only had to I've only become really interested in this because I realized how important they were to the future of geopolitics. Really, like eight months ago. So sometimes I'm talking and I'm like. Ah, I know what I need to say, but it, these are complicated, <laughs> complex. It's complex. It is. I yeah, think the, yeah. the main point I, I will just briefly say, I know we're running out of time, is that um, there needs to be discussions about why cryptocurrencies exist. And I think a lot of it, a lot of them have been started under the idea of financial uh, freedom, et cetera. But, you know, this this forces conversations as to whether cryptocurrencies, generally speaking, have been developed to uh, perfect digital payment systems that governments can then use in the future. Like, was that actually the point of crypto? I don't know the answer to that question, but I think anybody listening to this should ask what this is actually about. Um, I, I don't know this. I can only say this very briefly, but for example, intelligence connections to crypto need to be further investigated. I'm not yeah. convinced we have anything super concrete, but like the CIA director has even said that it has been involved or it's initiated cryptocurrency projects in the past. So this is something that needs to be discussed more. Is this really about financial freedom or are, are these protocols being developed to be used as uh, infrastructure that states can use in the future or state actors, governance structures can be used in the future? That, that's kind of the main thing I'd like to drive home to the audience. I don't know that for sure. This is an important thing we should all be asking questions about. Certainly. Yeah. And that's a great point. I think that we need to be very mindful of the fact that uh, it, this it would not be the first time that we were set up. You know what I mean? That these <laughs> these types of things were developed with a very specific intention in mind. And it's not the intent that we were sold uh, that was behind it. So, yeah, those are definitely questions that need to be asked. Um, and uh, a, a lot of investigative work needs to be done digging into that. And people just need to be 
um, aware and open-minded and, um, just vigilant. I think that that's really, and that's with everything. I mean, I'm not telling anybody anything they don't already know. Uh, you know, especially given everything going on in the world right now, vigilance is key. And I think that with this in particular, because it does have such wide ranging implications on a whole host of, um, uh, issues and in, in, including privacy and all that stuff that we discussed earlier. Um, I think that this is something that we, again, we need to be having those conversations. We need to be asking those tough questions. Um, and so I appreciate your article and you are welcome back anytime uh, to talk about this in further detail. Um, I appreciate you coming on today. Uh, so everybody, please check out the article. You can uh, find it at an unlimited hangout. Of course, there are links to uh, all of that stuff on my Substack. So quick one-stop shop for you there. So Stavrila, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. I appreciate you very much. Um, I'll be back tomorrow with Sabrina Salvati. As Julian Assange says, learn, challenge, act now, and don't go anywhere. Timothy Shays right after this here on today's News Talk.